Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome to the Got A Minute Podcast. I'm Larson Hicks and I'm joined by my co-host, Pastor Rich Lusk. How you doing there, sir? I'm doing great, Larson. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Yeah, man. So we're we're getting really pumped up and excited about this conference that's happening in Birmingham uh, next week and uh, no, two weeks from now. So I'm uh, I'm I'm up here in Huntsville trying to convince uh, some of my my teenage sons to to make the road trip with me. So hoping to be there. Um, tell us real quick about that that conference and and we'll kind of lead into our special guest to today's episode. Yeah, Larson. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, we're hoping to have a lot of your folks down here and a lot of other uh, people from our presbytery and, uh, of course, here locally and all that. Yeah, so the conference coming up is here at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, and you can go to uh, to our website or our Facebook page and get all kinds of information about it. It's going to be February 16th, so that Friday night, okay. and then uh, Saturday morning, February 17th. The theme of the conference is Courageous Church hostile world. Nice. And, uh, you can get tickets. Well, actually Larson, I think in the, uh, in the show notes, we'll get the links, yeah. uh, that people would need to go get tickets and that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to have you. We've got Joe Rigney coming. We just did a podcast with Joe the other day and that's now live. And then today we have got the one and only James Wood with us. Really happy to have Wood with us and really happy that he's coming to town to, uh, give a talk. One thing that I've, I've told our people in making my plug for the conference and really why we chose this this theme, this particular yeah. topic, and why we chose these two men, Joe Rigney and James Wood, to come speak for us is that uh, I think Joe and James are two of the very best in terms of understanding the present cultural situation and what the church needs to do. If we have uh, entered into, even, even in the Bible Belt, if we have entered into what uh, Aaron Wren has called negative world, and yeah. his book on this just came out, yeah. uh, if we've entered into negative world, the church has got to navigate a new cultural situation that we don't have experience with uh, in our own nation's history. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the, the church in other places in the world and throughout our history has dealt with uh, places where it was a real liability to be a Christian. Uh, but in our own nation's history, that really hasn't been the case up until now uh, in most places. Obviously, the, the, you know, these kind of changes don't happen all at once. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, they get rolled out quicker in some places than others. But uh, we are definitely entering into a cultural situation that's much more hostile to the church. Yeah. And so uh, certainly the church needs courage in that situation. We also need wisdom to understand how to uh, navigate these, these choppy waters we're now in. And Joe and James are two of the absolute best yeah. in terms of understanding the situation, understanding the political situation, the politics of it all, yeah. uh, understanding the calling and mission of the church in the midst of this understanding uh, what, it, what what kind of nation we want, what kind of culture we want, what we're aiming at, uh, and, and how to uh, deal with the political realities and the cultural realities that we face every day. So very much looking forward to it. Again, that's February 16th and 17th here in Birmingham, hosted by Trinity Presbyterian. I uh, hope you can join us. Yeah, I, I'm excited about it. I love the way that you guys are doing it on a Friday night so I can kind of, you know, slip out of work and, and head over there and make it for the evening and then I'm sure there'll be a crazy after party going on on Friday night uh, at the club. You or can't something. say after party anymore, Larson. We don't. We don't talk uh -oh. about after party. 
that might be misunderstood. Um, you know, the thing, the thing, maybe this is a segue once we get James uh, introduced here, but, but the thing about the negative world in the South, I think you're right uh, that we're entering into negative world in the South, probably already there. But the weird thing is that it's coming from within the church. It's like, it's this yeah. weird negative world where you're counseling people who are visiting your church and the arguments they're making in counseling and marriage counseling are arguments that you would expect to come from the left. And it's coming like coming from, from feminists and Marxists. And it's like, it's coming from people who identify as Christians, you know, and they're at your church uh, or they're certainly at your, you know, the church next door. Um, so it's a really weird version of negative world because it's like, it's, 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 uh, it's infected the church. Um, and I don't yeah. think that's like maybe part of the official definition of negative world that I think of when I think of, you know, Moscow, Idaho, or, or maybe Canada. Um, but well, I I've seen that too, Larson. And I, so I've seen, uh, what would be confessionally conservative churches around here, uh, be very dismissive of the very idea of Christendom, mm-hmm. uh, be very negative about the whole idea of a Christian culture, very glad that the Bible belt seems to be dying. And I'm, I'm like, no, wait a second. Do you understand what's going to take its place if it yeah. really goes away? Uh, so yeah, I, I've definitely seen that from within the church. I've also seen, uh, I just had a conversation with a guy the other day. He was lamenting the fact that he's got his kids in public school here and there's gay pride mm-hmm. paraphernalia all up and down the hallways and that right. kind of thing. And of course, you know, he's a Christian dad wanting to raise Christian kids and trying to want, you know, this, this isn't, these aren't the public schools he grew up in. And right. so now what? Uh, and so, yeah, just the world looks like a very different place. And it seems like yeah. for many of us, the, the country or the culture in which we grew up no longer yeah. exists. And so then the question is, okay, so what do we do now? What, what, it's well, not, we don't want to turn the clock back, obviously. That's never the goal. But what does it look like going forward? What is the mission of the church? And, and that really is why we want to talk to you, James, is because yeah. we think you've got great answers and great thoughts on those kinds of questions. Yeah. No, all the more reason why you need courage, right? And all the more reason why I think your conference is really important. So, so just uh, introduce uh, Doctor Reverend uh, James Wood. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. James James Wood is a, a assistant prof- or a professor of theology at Redeemer in uh, Ontario, um, and uh, was a pastor in the PCA in, in Texas for a, for a spell, I believe, and worked with the crew ministry out there. Um, associate editor at First Things, which a lot of us are big fans of. And yeah, I think you kind of busted onto the scene, at least into our circles, uh, with your with your article in, in 2022 about how you evolved on Tim Keller and kind of the winsome third way. And, and I think David French called you the face of the nasty new right or something like that. And so um, that, that just instantly gave you, like boosted your cred like a ton in uh in crec circles so um it's great to have you on the show (laughs) yes thank you uh yeah uh i think many people uh on the new right would be pretty disappointed that i was their nasty new face uh yeah that's right uh, so but that was yeah that was a wild ride um uh yeah i guess we can talk about that however much we want but uh uh that uh, I did, uh, yeah, I did not expect uh, that to shape my life as much as it did, but it did. Yeah, David French wrote the next day, and I woke up on Sunday morning for his, you know, Sunday hit letter, wow. and uh, saw my face on it, wow. and uh, it was a very strange way to begin the Lord's Day. No that kidding. Day, so yeah, wow. it's funny how David French rolls those articles out on uh, Sunday that are so often critical <laughs> of. Uh, of his Christian brothers and sisters. Right. Hey, so, so let's, but let's talk about this a little bit. Cause I, you know, I, I already knew about you. Of course, I already knew about you. We've actually got a, a, a mutual connection through uh time we both spent in Austin, Texas, but, mm-hmm. um, 
I, I think in terms of just your, you know, your rise to fame or infamy, however you want to describe it, <laughs> it was really your writing on Tim Keller, I think, that, yep. that, that did it more than anything. Uh, so kind of walk us through that, your criticisms of Keller. And I'll, I'll say this, you know, I, I first got exposed to Keller not long after he started his, his you know, doing his church plant in Manhattan. Uh, I was part of a church plant in Austin, Texas that was named Redeemer mm-hmm. because, hey, what, you know, that's a great <laughs> name for a church plant. Obviously. Yeah, we've only got like five names for churches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we read uh, Keller's papers. This is long before, you know, he had not done much publishing, but he was privately circulating papers that eventually. That's his best stuff, I still think. Yeah. We read a lot of those papers and staff meetings. And, and yeah, there's a lot of great stuff there. There's a lot of stuff even that then in the mid 90s made me really uneasy uh, because I always felt like <laughs> Keller was kind of on the more liberal or progressive end of things on a lot of issues. Yeah. Um, but uh, just kind of, kind of talk us through your your uh, what led you to write the essay that you yeah. wrote about Tim Keller and, and the aftermath of that. Yeah, I became a Christian in college through uh, crew ministries. I was a a pagan frat boy uh, down at University of Texas, finance bro. Um, wow. None of those things really <laughs> shape my life much anymore, but uh, God's providence Man, is that's hilarious. A, that's a radical salvation story right there, dude. That's <laughs> that's more radical than a lot of the a lot of the crazier ones I heard growing up in the Baptist church. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, my story is one of those annoying stories that is like everybody wants to put on their newsletter because it's so stupid and ridiculous. And uh, but you're also just like, you're also like, look, uh, uh, I'm just grateful that God called me and yeah, Jesus saved me, and I don't want my kids to have my story. So let's not talk about it anymore. Yeah, that's so, right. Uh, uh, but uh, no, I'm very grateful for the ministry of Crew, um, reaching out to an idiot pagan like me when I was 18. Yeah. And, uh, just God broke, broke me down real hard, uh, after my freshman year. And I fell in love with the church right away. I mean, it was the community that saved me. I mean, there was one particular person, I think Rich, you might even know him. I don't know if you ever met Ben Hallback, but, um, a friend down from in Austin who was doing ministry with crew. And he was the guy who was most reaching out to me, but it really was the community, uh, that he helped me plug into that. And I was comparing it. It was so obviously juxtaposed to my frat life, yeah. which I still loved my fraternity brother. I stayed in the fraternity as a missionary, uh, which crew helped me think about. And mm. I really do love those brothers, but I did see a strong contrast in the Christian community that I was invited into. And, uh, it was kind of a Leslie Newbegin type conversion of like, it was the community that was the hermeneutic of the gospel that provoked all of these, provoked all these questions. And yeah. then what drew me in. And so, but then getting to Keller, so the ministry, th- this was around Keller's heyday, right? So that was, I guess I became a Christian summer t- 2004. Okay. And all those little white papers were getting circulated. Uh, it was kind of the uh, the beginning of the internet kind of sermons on the internet getting cir- circulated a lot. Yeah. So I was listening to Keller's sermons. I think I first, I mean, one of the f- early sermons I heard was the famous one, you know, that then gets uh, produced uh, in his book on the prodigal God, which was kind of, I think, I still think is his best book. Yeah. I think that'll be the book that yeah. goes down as the most important book that he wrote, even though it's small and slim. And, uh, but I think that was his, that was a great contribution to help us understand the gospel. I think it gets misapplied in all sorts of ways, which maybe I can come to, but, um, but yeah, so I, I fell in love with his writing, his preaching, teaching style. And actually I myself write and teach, I think, and speak very similar to him. So his cadence actually resonated with me a lot. Uh, I'm actually uh, not a very aggressive. Uh, I don't modulate, you know, I, my, my voice doesn't go up and down much when I speak. Uh, and so I, I really gravitated toward his style. Um, but I also just did think he helped me think through cultural shifts. I think he's a great, even if I might disagree with some of his conclusions about what we should do, I think he actually 
is pretty incisive on like what is actually going on right now. I think he's a pretty good soci. He was always a pretty good sociologist as a pastor theologian. Yeah. And so those white papers that he would, you know, he wrote on ministry and, and social dynamics and the cultural moment, I always thought were pretty insightful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then I just got obsessed with him and I was, he's so quotable, you know, I mean, uh, so just people riff, steal his ideas all the time because he, and I think he would welcome that. Yeah. Uh, and so I was just, I was, I quoted him all the time. He informed a lot of my young theological imagination, ministry imagination. So, um, how I evolved on him uh, and what got me to that article. Then I think, so I was in Austin as a mission. Uh, I was a missionary there for a while, campus team leader for crew and then pastor helped plant a couple churches there. Um, and I just started to feel, I started to, my, my perspective on the cultural dynamics started to change even around, I think the time that Rod was starting to write the Benedict option stuff. And I was like, you know what? I think there's something right about this. Like, it does seem like things are getting more hostile. Yeah. People are pressing on the church in ways that I didn't used to feel. Yeah. Even in Austin, though, it's like a progressive city. I, I still say it's more of a, it's still a purple city rather than a blue city. Yeah. Um, because people still come for, for the most part. They end up in Austin. They came from uh, conservative places. Hmm. And so they oftentimes when that happens, you just have even if people are like running from a past. They still have relationships with those people yeah. in those uh, in, that uh, think differently. Yeah. And I think that shapes how they talk about and think about those groups of people. You can't just demonize whole swaths of people when you know yeah. they're in your family as well. Yeah. And so that made Austin, I think, generally for the most part, pretty pluralistic rather than just like purely pagan hostile to Christianity. But I did start to notice, especially on sex and gender stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, in the this is it's getting more aggressive. And I, I just wanted to help the church start to think about like, how do you prepare well for this pushback? Don't be afraid. I think that's the annoying thing about yeah. critics of the negative world conversation is they think everybody's just afraid. I'm like, no, but uh, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you, but don't be naive that they're going to come upon you. Yeah. Like, and, and so I think what I started to notice is uh, I, I noticed it in the response to Dreher's book um, by a lot of evangelicals. Um, and they're just like, this is, so, I remember Jamie Smith wrote the new alarmism piece. And I was like, well, like, do you know, there are certain things to be alarmed about. Yeah. Uh, right. And if you actually don't think through that now, you're going to be ill-prepared when you face the problems. So that was the first trigger for me. And then the 2016 election, which I've been very public about this, I didn't vote for Trump, but I hated how Christians who did were demonized by other Christians. That, that drove me really, really yeah. crazy. Yeah. Uh, because I just know way too many good people who were very thoughtful about what they were doing. And and I, I just think the logic of how those people were demonized really bothered me as a Christian, as a person who has a high ecclesiology, who cares about church unity. Yeah. So anyway, so the Keller stuff, I sorry, this long story, just a lot into it, you know? And so the, but I, um, so the, I started to rethink the winsomeness thing. Mm -hmm. Like, is this, and, and I think Keller's nuanced on it. I'm not never denying this, but how he, how this, how these ideas get applied so, you know, I critiqued winsome third wayism because what I was starting to notice is like this whole like neither left nor right, I think didn't provide enough guidance for the particular sets of issues that we face today. Like, okay, so what is, is there an asymmetrical danger and threat to Christian fidelity and like, you know, moral clarity today? Uh, and, and, and I don't think the third way thing really helps you there. It's like, of course, I don't know anybody who's saying like the Republican party gets it all right. That's so, that's a right. dumb critique. Like, I don't know anybody saying that. Are they, it, 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 are they as evil as the current democratic party? I, it's hard for me to say that. Right. I don't think so. Um, so I think the third way that, that little logic, I, I get what Keller's doing. He doesn't want to say you have to be a Republican to be a Christian. Absolutely. Right. 
Um, but I, I don't think that gets provides enough clarity. And then the winsome thing, I think, I, I think how that often gets applied by people is if we're just reasonable and kind enough, then like we'll win a hearing for the gospel, you know? Yeah. And I just think, I don't think that that's necessarily true. It doesn't mean yeah. go be a jerk, but I think even things that were pretty innocuous, just kind of pablum Christian moral teachings, uh, fit, you know, 30 years ago, uh, which didn't raise any feathers. Yeah. Now we're going to, you're going to be called a bigot. And I don't think that most evangelical laypersons are ready to be called a bigot. Yeah. I, I really don't think, and yeah. or a sexist or a racist yeah. or whatever. I mean, all sorts of the label, all the isms that are gets thrown around the pejoratives. I, I, I worry. I think most people are okay being called dumb for believing in supernatural teachings. Yeah. I don't think people are ready to be called bad and evil because their teachings on women, on gender, right. on, other things. So then, so after the 2016 election, that it just ramped it up. And then what, the reason I wrote it was I was just working at first things and Rusty knew that I used to really look up to Keller. I no longer looked to him very much anymore. And when I told him my dog though was named Keller because of his influence, Rusty said, well, that's a great lead in. You got to write an essay. So there it was. And then that changed my life, I guess. So. Well, I think it's uh, one of the things that that uh, about the winsomeness thing that's interesting to me. I, I just listened um, a couple. I think it was like last week. Michael Foster was on Chase Davis's podcast, and yeah, and they're talking about Acts twenty nine. You know, and and yep. and Chase's church was kicked out of Acts twenty nine. First first church ever to be kicked out of Acts twenty nine. You know, speaking of negative world coming from the church, right? Um, and so, um. Chase was asking Michael because Michael was a big part of Acts twenty nine for for early in his you know, ministry and yeah. Yeah. and he was asking what what what's the driving distinctive um, or or uh, identity you know of Acts twenty nine like what's their mission and and it was it was I I was like I almost spit my coffee out like while I was listening to it because it was so funny <laughs> Foster doesn't even hesitate he just goes oh that's easy cool yeah that's right it is it, and it was like. Okay. Yeah. that sounds about right. And I, and I think that we dress it up a lot, but like, I, I feel that way. I yeah. felt that way along for a long time in the PCA. Like there's a lot of folks who they really want to be cool. Like they really want to be yeah. cool. They don't really yeah. want to give that up. Yeah. I think, I think the word winsome is going to go the dodo, the way of the dodo, like the word relevant yeah. did, you know, like we all, we all suit like to think about like if the response to the people lost their minds like on the winsome critique, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, are you abandoning, you know, Christianity? It's like, Whoa, like for you guys know, like the word winsome is not even in the Bible. Right. And like, that's okay. Like the word Trinity is not either. I get that. But like, like, is this the whole, this is this, is this the whole sum of like Christian virtue and ethics? And, but similar, like relevant, it's like, you could have easily made the same case of people critiquing relevance as a, as a, as a dominant framework for cultural engagement. Right. Uh, right. You know, but I think we all know now there's profound perils and limitations to that framework. Right. I mean, you, it's easily, it's easy to slide into a sort of accommodation yeah. and an assumption that like, yeah, if you, if you're cool enough, you'll, you'll win the, the people. And I just think like, that just that's isn't just true. I mean, easy, yeah. that's such an easy path to take. Right. And, and yeah, I, yeah, to me, I mean, I think it's a great insight, James. And I think the problem with both winsomeness and relevance, it's not, it's not that we're in favor of being, you know, uh, mean or harsh, uh, you know, unnecessarily. And it's not that we want to be irrelevant, obviously yeah. the problem with winsomeness and relevance as like, as paradigms is that they basically accommodate the already existing Overton window 
which continues yeah. to shift further and further to the left. Right. So basically you're, you're kind of chasing progressives that are moving further and further to the left and you keep having to accommodate yourself to whatever new thing they've come up with because that's how you come off as winsome or that's how you come yeah. off as cool or that's how you come off as relevant is by fitting yeah. within a, a box that they have constructed for you. And, it's and overly, so that, yeah. that's, that's where I think winsomeness or relevance, you know, both of those paradigms, I think really then become a cover for cowardice and basically compromise on yeah. the part of the church. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're both overly oriented towards the receptor to the exactly. audience. Yeah. Um, that's why I wrote in my first piece. It was subtle. And I don't know if you'd only catch it if you were a big Keller fan, because I said, basically, the the, the winsome model, uh, what I call it, the secular friendly model for for cultural engagement has the same perils as the seeker friendly model for exactly. worship. And if you don't know, Keller was extremely critical in his own life about seeker friendly worship. Mm. And because uh, he had he conceded these ideas, and so I was trying to say like, hey, there's similar issues here, right? Like, it, there's the accommodationist temptation. Like, you're always thinking about it, it's subtle. You might not even notice it, but you increasingly start to let the world set the terms for your engagement, right? Exactly. And then and then and then the world also starts to blackmail you and hold you hostage. Yeah. Uh, and for one, one thing, I would add that I'm still working on it. in a couple essays that I've got in the hopper, you know, and I've kind of talked about this a little bit. It's like there's the whole like. Um, Tom Holland kind of stuff going on right now, which it's great stuff. Like, you know, it's kind of like a positive inversion of the Nietzschean thesis that like, you know, we can't ever go back because Christianity is so stamped to the West. So even in your rejection of certain Christian things, it's like, you're still using Christian principles. And so Holland kind of does that in a more positive way. He's like, yeah, like the, and this is a good thing. Like, he, but the problem is there, I, I think people who aren't attuned to some of the issues is you not, might not be realizing how the, the critics of Christianity can weaponize principles that, of Christianity that are abstracted from the rest of the Christian whole. And you get tricked by that because like, you, hey, Christians, you need to be loving. O of course you do. But like now what is what does love look like? Uh, if loving now just gets abstracted from the Bible and now it's just affirmation of every desire that you have inside of you, that that isn't Christian. And yet you're easily hoodwinked because you're using Christian terminology, yeah. you know? Um, anyway, yeah, well, no, I, I think you're exactly right, and 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 so a, a lot of what I think has you know wokeness is the term that's, that gets yeah. used. So I'll use it. Wokeness is basically weaponizing Christian virtues against Christian orthodoxy. Uh, the way Chesterton put it, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but basically, yep. progressivism is the, is the Christian virtues gone mad. Or I, I think about you know we just had a conversation with Joe Rigney. The way Joe puts it, he talks about untethered empathy. Okay, so you have all these virtues, empathy, compassion, love, and so forth. Winsomeness, yep. you could even say civility. Yep. When they are untethered from the rest of the Christian worldview, the rest of the Christian moral framework, yep. Yep. then they actually can be weaponized. They, they can be very, very subversive and be, they can be used against Christian orthodoxy. And I think that's what we're seeing happening. And so the, the kind of uh, apostasy that, you know, with, with say, you know, ex-evangelicals or, you know, those who talk about deconstructing their faith, a lot of times what we're seeing, it's, it's very different than just a, than just a straight return to paganism. Uh, they, they, they bring a lot of Christian baggage with them, you know, which, which of course we, you know, we, the, the point you're making about Tom Holland, I think is exactly right. Unbelievers in the West are still very much conditioned and shaped by the Bible and by the Christian tradition because it's just in the air we all breathe. So it's there. But I think what you're seeing is these people who, uh, you know, even when they want to get away from the Christian faith, the, the, the kind of orthodoxy maybe that they grew up with or that they associate with traditional or conservative churches, you know, they still bring a lot of Christian baggage with them. 
but they have detached it from the framework in which those virtues um, were, were originally found and in which those virtues grew up in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like to call it like a, I, one of the reasons I was so surprised that my killer piece <laughs> got such a response because I'd written more provocative pieces before that. And what happened? Nobody paid attention. Mitch so, Keller. He's a uh, Yeah, that's right. So don't, do not touch the Lord's anointed. I found out right. very quickly. Uh, and so, um, uh, but I wrote early pieces on, on, on wokeness before it was safe to even talk about. It. Now it's yeah. really, anybody can critique wokeness. But when I wrote, I wrote pieces in 2020 that were critique, cause I was in the Academy and I'm like, I see where this is going. I know where this right, is going. Right. Like, uh, but I called it, you know, wokeness is post-Christian or post-Protestant uh, neo-paganism. And, uh, but hmm. it, it, cause it does have a very Protestant, uh, uh, uh nature to it. Uh, the, the, the best author on this is Joshua Mitchell in his book, uh, the great awakening. Yeah. Um, uh, like even the word woke, like, uh, it's a type of awakening, which itself is very Protestant. Is very it, yeah. Very, right? very, yeah. Kind of very Protestant uh, Christian, uh, but it's a heresy. And, and I think that like what you're talking about, like a certain part of Christianity pulled out an abstraction from the whole. Well, that's the nat- that's what a heresy is. A heresy is one truth that's it's partial truth but yeah. abstracted from the other ones that tether it and round it out, and therefore, by virtue of isolating it, it becomes very dangerous. And one of the reasons why heresies are so dangerous for Christians is because it's so it's very close to the truth. Yeah, that, that's the problem, yeah. and it sounds exactly like it. Yeah, uh, and that and, and that's the subtle. I think that's the subtle deception. Well, that's what makes them more things. more virulent. You know, if you were to yeah. right. makes yeah. it even more dangerous yeah. because, you know, again, a lot of the language and categories will, will sound so familiar to Christians. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, James, let's shift gears for just a minute. <laughs> um, you do the uh, Civitas podcast with Peter Lightheart. Um, and I was hottest in- podcast on the airwaves. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was in the Civitas group with you for a while. Yep. Uh, working on some of these issues related to classical liberalism, post liberalism, uh, ecclesiocentrism and all of that. Let's talk about this for just a minute. Um, give us your rundown on, you know, one, one thing that you see emerging is kind of this post-liberalism. And I, and I see, you know, different categories of, you know, Christians are responding to this differently. There are some, yeah. I've seen like, you know, maybe put Andrew Sandlin or somebody like that in this category who want to hang on to classical liberalism because they see it as a framework that, uh, that if, if, if it's not, um, they, they see it as consistent with a Christian faith or an outgrowth of the Christian faith yeah. in the political sphere. Others, of course, have been very cr- critical of classical liberalism because they basically see it as paving the way to individual autonomy. Uh, they see it as privatizing the church. Uh, how, how do you navigate those kinds of questions? Huh, yeah. Um, uh, let's see here. I mean, liberalism is such a behemoth, right? It's such a, yeah. it's such a monster to try to tackle. Uh, it's gone through all sorts of different stages. Um, and it's, and so you can't, it, it's not a monolith. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, uh, okay. Uh, I think most conceptions of liberalism would at least, uh, focus on, uh, the priority of the individual and their freedom. So yeah. liberty it's, it's, it's built in and great. So if you're in a, in a, in a culture that is robustly Christian and, and, and the kind of, uh, moral presuppositions broadly and kind of s- social structure, is, is still profoundly shaped by other Christian values and the, the church is very prominent in society. Okay, great. So you can talk about the, the rise of the individual in a very positive way. I mean, I do think Christianity, like Larry Seidentop would be someone who like talked about the, the rise of the individual as a product of Christianity. Okay, mm-hmm. that, that's true. Mm-hmm. But it never was abstracted from all these other things, just like we've been talking about. Yeah. And the problem with, it seems like how liberalism plays out in the modern world is it just has this, this kind of... Uh, 
dynamism to it, this uh, un, it's an unstoppable force yeah. of continually emancipating the individual from anything. And so maybe you say, great, the good of liberalism is it emancipates uh, individuals from kind of arbitrary oppressive structures uh, and social customs. So great. Like not every custom that we have, like Christianity does, Christianity will come in and critique. It has this transcendent referent that comes in critiques every sort of imminent uh, system and structure and custom. Absolutely. Uh, and therefore the individual has a renewed dignity within Christianity uh, that isn't just assigned to their role and the kind of contemporary culture around them. Uh, the problem is, is when Christianity continues to decline uh, and people who no longer have those broader sets of moral assumptions yeah. and they're just driven by this idea of a man, a progressive emancipation, uh, then it gets a cr completely untethered like we've been talking about. So Remy Brog is one of my favorite. There, there's all sorts of people you could point to about great critiques of liberalism, but Remy Brog has written one of my favorite uh, introductions to these themes called The Kingdom of Man, uh, the, and I think the subtitle is like The, fa the, the Failure of the Modern Project. You know, it's a very provocative subtitle, especially people don't like the term modern project because then it assumes like there's some sort of intentional project that uh, unites all these figures. But one of the things he defines liberalism as or the modern world as is the progressive, the, the ongoing pursuit, the endless pursuit to progressively emancipate the human from all it purports to stand above it. Right. So you, the free to emancipate it from God and religion, from cultural customs, from nature and even biology now. Right. And so you see, like, where, where does this liberty end? Right. Uh, and so uh, those are just some issues with it. And so uh, I have, you know, we have lots of thoughts about what liberalism is. I, I, one of the ways I tend to think about it generally, if I had to, is um, you could kind of think about it as a threefold revolution about about the nature of the, the person, about religion and freedom. So about the nature of the person, you, you kind of think about the person as not in these social relations that you're a social being like Aristotle, you know, uh, you're a social animal, social and political animal, uh, or even, uh, or even a religious animal, I guess I'll get to that. But, but no, you're, you probably think about the person as an isolated individual and society is the, the kind of mutual contracting between all these isolated atomistic units, right. Yeah. Uh, based on kind of rational choice theory, you know, we just, right. we self-select and all of our bonds have to be chosen. Uh, First of all, I just think that it's not how anybody lives. Your 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 first bond is your parents, you know, uh, which you did not choose. So there's a great quote by um, uh, uh, now I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, but basically, liberal social contract theorists, you know, theories are devised by childless men who've forgotten their childhood. Uh, yeah, the best refutation of liberalism is to look at your belly button. Yeah, yeah, right. Like you, you come in the world as dependent and connected, and connected. Um, yeah, and so, so it's a revolution about the person. It's a revolution about religion, which is tries to privatize religion. It changes religion into this private thing, which before modernity really was never considered that way. And so that's a whole bunch, bunch of people written about that. And the other one is that uh, it, it, it's a revolution about the nature of freedom. That it's it's uh, purely in negative terms, right? Uh, and so that's, that's one way I would summarize it. Uh, but, yeah. uh, I know classical liberals would all contest that. Oh, Tocqueville had this. Okay. 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 But nobody thinks about that. Nobody thinks that those are not the assumptions anymore. So. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I, I really appreciate your, your new, I just, I'll use the term, your nuanced approach to that question, because I mean, let's face it, it is, it is a complicated question. There's a lot of complicated history built into it. Um, classical liberalism, depending on you know, sort of where in, in history you slice into it to see what's going on inside of it, you're going to get different answers. I mean, even, even yeah. if you go back to America's founding, um, you know, you, we could, we could, we could point to certain flaws built into the American project. You know, one of them perhaps being that, uh, that the church is, 
uh, largely privatized. But then you have to deal with the fact that something like nine of the original 13 states of the United States of America had established churches at the state level. So they were not class. If that's what we mean by classically liberal, they were not classically liberal in that sense. Um, Also, (laughs) there are certain aspects of, say, individual rights that seem uh, you know, I'm, that I don't think we'd want to give up in a post-liberal world. I mean, we could go yeah. through the Bill of Rights and look at these, yeah. but a lot of those, I think, come straight out of, uh, you know, the Christian political tradition that long predates, yep. uh, you know, what, the, the rise of class. Yeah, most of the goods that people associate with liberalism predated liberalism. Exactly, exactly. We, we could do the same with markets. You know, people, yeah. people associate free markets with classical liberalism, and maybe the market's gotten out of control and is sort of, you know, eaten up more than it should have in our lives, uh, you know, in, in certain ways. But there, there's still something to be said for uh, free exchange uh, in an open market uh, of, of any, let's just say, lawful goods and services, something like that. So, uh, so yeah, there, there are certain aspects of, of classical liberal, liberalism that I think are very consistent with the historic Christian tradition. But I think, and this is the kind of thing that Patrick Deneen and, and I've seen others really focus on, is um, they will, they will really boil it down to the autonomy of the individual. Yeah. And if that's how you take liberalism, then yes, it, it is, it is at root anti-Christian. Um, part of that entails a kind of pluralism in the public square, which I think also, you know, we would, we would yeah. want to take issue with. Um, <laughs> but, but the autonomy of the individual and the individual being liberated, like you yeah. talked about being liberated perhaps from some oppressive structures, yeah. but ultimately now we can see, say with transgenderism and that kind of thing, it's it's liberation even from nature itself, you know, from his yeah. created design, and of course that that's that's disastrous. Yeah, just um, as a Christian, I, you know, the autonomy thing. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I just I I've never been drawn to that <laughs> principle. I just can't imagine as a Christian thinking that way. You're primarily yeah. an autonomous yeah. being. I mean, right. Right. you are under the lordship of, of the living God. Well, does. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if like some of this is epistemological, like I, 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 like as we're talking about individualism and modernism, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about, uh, Descartes, you know, and, and, yeah. and cogito ergo sum, which is, which is like first person singular, you know, that's where you start yeah. is me, but you even go back to Anselm and it's credo ut intelligam. It's still right. first person singular. So it's like, like our, our epistemology, uh, is, is sort of. The bedrock, you start with yourself. And and I wonder if that's that's where where the whole thing, whole project goes goes sideways. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, I'm an Augustinian uh, yeah. much more than I'm a Cartesian. Uh and so uh yeah. good. I, I, I even <laughs> good. love uh yes, how please. Augustine starts his confessions, right? I mean, it's just a fascinating, it's 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 one of the great masterpieces of the of, of, of the world. Yeah, world history. Is, yeah sure. But like he starts it, you know, the most most famous quote is like seven lines in of like, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Like you start with this internal, uh, ineliminable dynamism built into you for longing and hunger for God. But I just love how this book that starts as the language, so it, it's kind of a spiritual autobiography, which kind of was sui generis in the ancient world. It was a very novel writing. And yet the book actually isn't about, isn't really about Augustine himself at all. I mean, right, it is, right. but not primarily. He's because he's basically starting like, actually, my confessions are about God. Right, right, uh, right. And so he just has this such he has such a theological anthropology right. that like, I, it's, it's hard for me to pair that up with a liberal anthropology. Right. right. Yeah. So so Descartes. I mean, and you could say Descartes in a way feeds into a kind of liberal anthropology of the disconnected atomized self. 
Yeah. Um, you know, Descartes. And a very rationalistic. I mean, yeah. very rationalistic. I mean, liberalism is trying, it's a, it's, you know, yeah, liberalism is, is a, it's a, uh, like David Coises wrote a great book on political ideologies yeah. from a reformed Christian perspective. And he actually talks about, he actually grounds classical liberalism. He go, he first actually starts with Descartes yeah. Yeah. of, of, yeah. of isolating, abstracting the individual and focusing on reason and then trying to build a social order in this kind of scientific way b- based upon kind of like rational principles, yeah. uh, in, in an or yeah, in an orderly fashion. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- so think about Descartes. He starts with himself. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah. And and then he kind of constructs the entire world out from that. Right. You know, u- using his own mind. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so the entire world then is kind of his own construction. Then think of how Augustine starts, or really, you could say Calvin and his Institutes is the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They both start with God, and of course, with man. You know, they, I'd yeah. say start with God ultimately, and with man yeah. proximately. Yeah. Yeah. God as the Creator man is made in his image. And so there's this inescapable relationship between man as creature and God as creator from the outset. And so the confessions are, are Augustine's confessions about the triune God who made him. When yeah. Calvin starts, you know, the, the opening of his institutes, you know, book chapter one of book one, he, you know, we can't know God without knowing ourselves. We can't know yeah. ourselves without knowing God. We know God and self in the same act. As soon as you come to self-consciousness, there's also God consciousness. Uh, you can't escape that. There's this inescapable knowledge of God that's built into the world. So man is always already related. He never exists as an unrelated being right. who then, you know, say, chooses to enter into relationships. Relationships are always already there. Right. And, and so it's just a completely different picture of the world that you get than what you get in some versions. I'll just, I'll, I'll just put it that way. Some versions of <laughs> classical liberalism. Well, yeah, in, in, in totally Oigen, I, I have to bring this up every other episode, uh, or it's not a, not a proper, you know, if you're, if you're playing the, the got a minute drinking game, you know, this is where you check it off the box, but, but Eugen Rosenstock, you see, you know, his, his chapter, <laughs> uh, in, in, in that collection, a uh, farewell to Descartes, you know, articulates his, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. respondeo etse, etse mutabor, you know, that this, which, which is, assumes, you know, I, I respond, although I will be changed. It's sort of, there, there's, there's something that it's referring to outside of himself uh, right out of the gates, you know, is, is there's, there's something outside of me that, that is speaking that I'm responding to. Um, anyway, I'll stop there. Yeah, that's great. Hey, James, let's, let's, uh, uh, there, you guys, you've, I've, you know, I've read several of your things that I think are really interesting. Uh, and I didn't mention this to you ahead of time, but, uh, one thing I know you've worked <laughs> on is Abraham Kuyper and, uh, is it, is it Hodemacher? Is that how you would pronounce his name? Uh, Hudemacher, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Kuiper is held out as something of a hero in, in many <laughs> yeah. segments of the Reformed faith. Uh, I certainly regard him, you know, as a yeah. hero in certain respects. Uh, Kuiperianism, uh, you know, gets gets lots of, uh, you can get a lot of mileage out of that. Kuiper's <laughs> famous line, there's not one square inch that Christ doesn't claim as mine all of that. Um, but there were definitely some flaws in Kuiper. Yeah, and I think that yeah. kind of ties in with this conversation that we've had. Yeah. Um, kind of walk us through that, the the, the critique of Kuiper uh, that uh, well, that you've written about some and that, that might be yeah. helpful for, for, for our audience to think through. Yeah. So I, I still have an at great admiration for Kuiper. I'm at a Kuiperian institution. I teach at Redeemer. It's super Kuiper. It's a Kuiperian hub. Nice. And so I presented that essay that you're bringing up um, at, at the Kuiper conference, I, you know, I like to stir the pot a little bit. I always <laughs> like to be a little fly in the ointment a little bit, you know, uh, just like, Hey, wherever I am, I, I want to be like, Hey, there's limitations from all these places that we 
uh, all these standpoints. Yeah. And so let's, let's keep, let's keep pressing it, right? Let's keep seeing where there's, there's issues. So Kuiper, so he's got the every square inch quote, which is probably his most famous. That comes from his stone lectures uh, that he delivered at, at Princeton. Um, uh, and so I think people think, like, oh, if you just heard that and you're trying to figure out, you know, he's this transformationalist kind of theocrat. Okay. But then he also has his other most famous quote is probably a free church and a free state. Mm-hmm. So now you have to start wrestling with how do those pair together? Mm. Um, uh, and he, he strongly believes he's a plur- he's a, and so principle of pluralism becomes a very strong Kuyperian political f- sentiment. And Hudemacher was a, a contemporary of his and they worked together at the free university and Hudemacher became increasingly disillusioned with Kuyper's answers to the problems of modernity. Hmm. He thought that he conceded way too much to liberalism. Uh, he thought he conceded way too much to dominationalism. Uh, the fact that Kuyper had abandoned the, the, the national church. Um, uh, and he, he, he thought that was an issue. Um, and abandoned the Belgian confession on that point. And then he abandoned the Belgian confession on the magistrate article 36. So the best book by Hudemacher is by art on article 36. And he's like, look, I just don't think you have enough. You, you've thought through this enough. I actually don't think your critiques are solid enough to actually change it, which is that's on the magistrate and its duties towards religion and the Belgian confession, just like the Westminster confession was changed in America, took away the kind of magistrate's duty to kind of defend true religion and, and and suppress idolatry and things like that. And okay. So here's my challenge to people who, you know, classical liberal and and maybe would go with Kuiper on that front. I I think you need to make the case. Like, uh, are you actually being biblical here? You know, um, uh, there's a lot of Bible to deal with, um, and, and not you can't just build your political framework just from the New Testament either. I mean, also from the so Nebuchadnezzar and he responds to the uh, the witness of Daniel. Uh, is that was that wrong for Nebuchadnezzar to to honor God publicly and to suppress idolatry? Was it wrong for uh, you know uh, King Josiah? Uh, 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 you know, or you know, what, I mean, there's just. Uh, or was it, it was even just church history? I mean, was it wrong for Theodosius uh, after Constantine? Um, I, I, I just think we have we thought through this enough, and and I don't think Kuiper thought through it sufficiently, and I don't think most of our contemporaries think through it sufficiently. So here's the other thing: I actually, you know, I actually even some some of my inspiration on these points is even Leslie Newbegin himself. Mm. Uh, uh, he has a great little section about politics in the book Foolishness to the Greeks. Um, and what's actually one of Keller's favorite books, which interestingly enough, but it's a very provocative chapter. And he's like, look, secularism doesn't exist. Uh, there will always be gods on the civic throne. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get rid of the God, you'll have pagans, uh, enter, enter to fill that, that gap. Right. And, 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 but he has this great quote saying it's very different to concede plural plurality as a social fact then that's different than endorsing pluralism mm. as an ideology. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I, I think it's I, I, absolutely, we need to think about plurality. We need to think about the fact that not everybody believes. We need to think about toleration. There's a whole rich tradition of toleration in the Christian tradition, but that is not plural. I think toleration is different than pluralism. Mm. And so I think toleration can still conceive of the fact of a public endorsement of true religion and even promotion of true religion that still carves out room for dissidents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. It, it seems to me that a, a quote unquote Christian state, uh, a Christian nation uh, would be quite tolerant in various ways yep. uh, of other faiths. Uh, now, not of all their practices. Yep. And uh, so, you know, you would not be, I, I, I mean, even in, Amer- you know, let's say America, which I think, you know, 
people would, would say America's pluralistic and we believe in the freedom of religion. But we didn't let Mormons practice polygamy. Yeah. We didn't let Native American Indians use certain drugs in their religious rituals. Yeah. Uh, we don't let Satanists sacrifice cats. Uh, you know, you can go down the list. I mean, we actually don't have religious freedom and religious yeah. freedom is impossible. We don't let Muslims practice jihad. At least we yeah. try to stop that when we can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it, so the religious, religious freedom is a myth. Yeah. There's really no such thing as religious freedom. Uh, and it would be impossible to have a society yeah. that is completely religiously free. Right. Uh, it's, it's, so yeah, going back to something you said, um, which I think is really interesting, and I didn't realize this until recently, but Kuiper, um, and I don't remember where I read this. I can't remember what the name of, of the essay was, but uh, but he, he actually is very favorable to uh, to the American church state set up and the first yeah. amendment and all of that. Yeah. And, and I think that is his principled pluralism coming yeah. out. And I think you can see how he, you know, and again, I haven't read all of the, all, all the background with him about the Belgic article uh, 36 and all of that, but it does seem to me that he would probably want a revision to that similar to what happened to the Westminster confession yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with American Presbyterians, where basically the role of the magistrate is, 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 is largely diluted or maybe pulled out of that altogether in terms of his um, obligation. But the American situation was so interesting because, yeah, you said the states, the states still had a step. There's so many states that had establishments. Yeah. Uh, and, and the issue was more a federal one. A federal, um, right, at the federal level. And so, I mean, yeah, it's a, yeah, I think you're right. There, there, there's no true, there's no absolute religious freedom. Nobody actually believes that. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, I think, and even today, like for instance, you know, we, we still have blasphemy laws today. Uh, there are certain things you cannot say right, uh, right, yeah. because it offends the contemporary religion. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know what God you serve, just look at who you're not allowed to criticize. Yeah. Look what gets you kicked off Twitter. You might call them hate uh, speech laws, but we still have blasphemy laws. Yeah. Hate speech laws are just, uh, that's just, um, so, okay. Uh, one, one thought about that. That's, that's just blasphemy laws in a humanitarian religion. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, our, our religion is just, this is, this is what, um, Stephen Smith and his really important book, um, uh, now I can't remember, but it's about culture wars, something. Oh yeah. P pagans and Christians in the city culture wars from the Tiber of the Potomac. He talks about paganism is just immunitized religion. It's right. just religion transferred down to the imminent Frank to the imminent. Uh, and well that, uh, you think about hate, hate speech, that's just immunitized blasphemy laws. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's really, really good. I think that's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, here's another way to get at it. Alexander Schmeyman said something like, I'm, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, uh, show me what you celebrate and I'll tell you who you worship. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can look at the festivals, the celebrations. You can basically look at the calendar that a culture keeps. And from that, you can deduce what their God is. So yeah. what does it say about the God of a culture when you have a whole month set aside? Yeah you know, to celebrate sexual perversity. Right. What does yeah. that say about the God of our culture? Um, it's the same kind of thing with abortion. Uh, you know, the fact that th this, this is, you know, what do we make our greatest sacrifices for? Um, we love orgasms more than we love children. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. therefore you, you know, abortion is a kind of sacrament yeah. of, uh, of, of, of pagan liberalism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter Kreeft has the best quote on that. Uh, if you've, I'm sure you've seen it, right? Abor abortion is the great um, secular sacrament that right, totally right. perverts the Eucharist. Exactly. Right? So the Eucharist is about right. my body for you. Right. Yeah. Abortion is your body for me. Yep. That's exactly right. Uh, and it's it's tragic. And you think about all this. Yeah. You have the calendar. So we have a calendar. You also have you have a version of saints. 
Uh, you do. Uh, George Floyd you, they, now, it, the, the latest to be. Yeah, right. there's all sorts of them. And, 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 <laughs> and then you have you have uh, public symbols that go on the White House. Right. Um, I mean, you're not you. There is no non-religious society. Right. So. Right. And even taking down the old symbols tells you there's a changing of the guard. And, and so it's an iconoclasm. I've heard people say, you know, oh, it doesn't matter that they took down a statue of Columbus or because it's just a statue. I'm like, it is just a statue. But there's a very real sense in which symbolism is the essence of politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Symbolism yeah. is the essence of culture and public life. And so when you have a one set of statues taken down, so a new set of statues can be erected, that tells you yeah. this is the changing of the gods. This is yeah. the change. This is the changing of the regime at, at a at a much higher level than just what happens every four years. When we might elect a new president like this. This is the, the sort of the transcendent cultural regime is, is you know, we're trading out one for a new one. Uh, it's so I think, revolutionary in that way. Yeah. So I think these conversations are the best way to get people to talk about post liberalism. Yeah. It's just that post liberalism just is a better recognition of these facts uh, that are inescapable. Like we, you never lived in a secular world. You never yeah. lived in a non-religious society. Yeah. You never, we have always lived in something like this. And post-liberalism, at its most basic level, I think is just an acknowledgement of those realities. And therefore, trying to be, it's kind of like what you know what Carl Truman. Carl Truman had that great book years ago on the creeds, right? And like one of the best ways to, one of the best things he's doing there is exposing everyone, every Christian. Uh, to the fact that you you always have a creed and your church has a creed. Some of them are just explicit and some of them are implicit. Yeah. And the, the ones that are most dangerous are the implicit ones, Truman says. Yeah. yeah. Because those are the ones that can be used to manipulate people the most. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and those are the ones that are least contestable. And so they operate below the surface and, yeah. and all those things. And uh, he's like, but look, y- your church has it. So you try to change the music or something like that. And all of a sudden people's, yeah. people's creeds start popping out, right. you know, <laughs> uh, but you didn't know you transgressed the holy line right, uh, right. until, but the, the great thing about an explicit public creed is you, you know how to operate, you know what the terms are it, and it, you can actually challenge it directly. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the same thing is going on here with post-liberalism is just like you live in a religious society. There is a public religion promoted yeah. uh, that, and now we could, let's just be more honest about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of, so, I was going to say uh, that, that reminded me of a quote from uh, one of our, um, elders, Jason Cherry, when he talks about denominations, he he talks about how the word denomination just means to name, <laughs> right? And so a non-denominational church is is just a, a church who's not willing to name their beliefs, but right. they're not a church that doesn't have beliefs. They're just not, they're just not willing to name them. Yeah. <laughs> James, let's, uh, let's uh, shift gears once again. Um, we, we've identified uh, these post-liberal realities. Talk about the, the role, the calling, the mission of the church in this uh, brave new post-liberal world we're entering into. Yeah. There's a great, there's a great book out there. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> uh, I've seen that Measures book of the Missions. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Rich has been involved in your, the- Your check's Ecclesi- in the mail, James. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> he's been involved in the ecclesiocentric post-liberalism conversation before it had a name, I think. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, I- uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I was reading Rich years ago when I was going through ordination, which probably was the dumbest thing for me. Yikes. That was not and real then, smart. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was not very smart. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, you and Peter, you know, uh, uh, red pilled me on the church. Uh, you know, really helped. I mean, I'd already had a strong ecclesi- ecclesial sense, but then kind of filling that out with some principles. Yeah, and then seeing how the modern world. I, I think for me, I got into political theology be, because I, I I was actually very interested in 
not like how to reclaim the culture, but actually how the the kind of cultural presuppositions we have mitigate real thick ecclesial faith. That, that was actually my bigger issue. Is like, why is the church so hard for modern persons mm. to live into and 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 and, and submit to and commit yeah. to? And there, I, I think we just inherit so many assumptions that we're just completely unaware of yeah. uh, that make real thick church living uh, very difficult. So you, you and Peter helped me with that a lot. And so, uh, yeah, what, what does the church do here? I mean, I, I think the church needs to have Christians, pastors, so I'll start with there. Like they need to have, um, like one, one of the things I, I think I told you this, Richard, we hung out last time uh, in Birmingham was, I, I think what one of the ways I conceive of my entire academic oeuvre you know, all the things I write and speak on, if I could distill it down is like one of the things I, I really want to do is just help pastors realize that what, what you do is the most important thing in the world. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and not in a way like some strong clericalism, but because the church is the most important thing go- happening in the world. Yeah. And so when you help gather the people for, you know, public worship um, and uh, sorry, my daughter's here, that uh, that's the, that's the central political act that's happening in history. Yeah. And, um, and so you already you already believe that, and so I, you know I'm not I'm preaching the choir here, but uh, but I you know I hope pastors uh, know that uh, and lean yeah. it live into that, and then I hope Christian uh, laypersons uh, love what the church is and commit to well, it and serve in it and, and all and, that stuff and planting churches versus evangelism. I mean I I, I, it, it, yep. I know you say that you know, to say that as if it's a those are mutually exclusive. They're, they're not. Yep. You know I mean church yep. planting is evangelism. But it, it's yeah. God's plan for evangelism is go go establish yeah. churches. Yeah, yeah. I bring this up with my students. I, I'm a mission prof, you know, and so that's my uh, I do th- in the theology religion theology department. My focus is on mission and ministry, and uh, yeah, I bring up this this I, this question to my students, you know, because they probably never thought about it. Like, when does Paul consider his mission completed in an area? Uh, and most of the students have never thought about it. Well, he signals that at multiple points, but it's primarily right. when he established elders. Yeah. Uh, well, and then it's not when he preached the gospel to every single person in the area. Yeah. Well, no, because he's established a permanent beach, a community as a permanent beachhead with, with authorized leadership. Yeah. Well, and, and now that now he knows the mission will continue, but that means you're not done with the mission. Definitely. The, the most fundamental level is you, you have to plant a, part of the goal of the mission is the church. Yeah. So Leslie Newbegin's great on this. The, the church is both the, the means of the mission. But that can just purely instrumentalize the church. The church is also an end of the mission. Right. Exactly. Uh, because what is God What is God actually wanting to do in the world? Right. Well, he's wanting to have a redeemed, huma- recon- redeemed reconciled humanity. Uh, and so what is, what, what is that other than the church? So That's great, James. And, and this is exactly why we want to have you to this conference in Birmingham, because of the kind of insights you're bringing in this discussion right here. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell our audience this. I, I really, I'm not super engaged in social media. I don't even know how to tweet or whatever you call tweets now that they changed the name of it. Your ex, uh, I think it's called. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm, but I do, you know, if I do get on Twitter, uh, there, there's very few people that I'm interested in checking out, but James is always one of them. Uh, your Twitter feed is full of, what is it, an X feed now? What do you call that? Whatever it is. The, the app formerly known as Twitter, uh, James is is just loaded with insight there. Yeah. Uh, great stuff, uh, great articles you put out uh, out on the web. So, uh, and and this conversation, you know, has just has just been full of insight too. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's begin to wrap this thing up. Uh, tell us a little, give us a little preview of the talk yeah. you're going to give when you're down here in Birmingham uh, in a couple of weeks. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm still working on it. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the uh, the title for the conference, right, is uh, you know, courageous church, hostile world. Yeah, and so that's sick. Obviously, that's that's. Uh, trying to build upon in a constructive way recognition of the Aaron Wren negative world stuff. We've entered into a, a new world and let's not only recognize that, but respond to it yeah. appropriately. And so that made me think about since I've been, I just have been working on city of God a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book on it right now. And, um, and so I'm like, well, I'm going to make, I'm going to use that. So, uh, but one of the fascinating things about city of God is the Genesis of the work for him, which is uh, it was written in response to the sack of Rome. Yeah. Uh, 410 AD, and, and then all these accusations that were leveled at the churches, at Christians, by the pagans, basically blaming them for making the, the empire weak and vulnerable to attack. Hmm. And so I titled my talk, we'll see if this is exactly what I stick with when I actually deliver it, but Politics at the End of the World, hmm. or From the End of the World. And I'm kind of playing with that because one, Augustine was a he wrote his book trying to address these concerns about a world that had ended. We had entered into a new period. Yeah. Uh, we have to adjust. We have to adjust to this fact. And Christians were confused. Uh, they were accused of uh, causing the problems that brought them to this place. Yeah. Um, and so I'd like to play. I'm, I'm, what I'm wanting to do is show some parallels and then kind of build upon that for our contemporary world that we have entered a new world. We're in the negative world or any, you could say the West is the West over uh, where, you know, we're in post Christendom or with the last gasp of Western civilization. Mm. And how are the churches attacked and confused here? Uh, how are we blamed for civilizational disharmony and discord yeah. and problems? And so I, I'd like to expand all that and kind of see what Augustine could teach us. Uh, what, what's different. His context was very different than ours. And so it's not an exact parallel, yeah. but I do think there's something there. Uh, and then also I, I, I am going to, it's going to play, it's definitely going to discuss the courage part yeah. because one of the fascinating things about city of God, it, I hate hearing evangelicals talk about it because first of all, one of the reasons I'm excited about writing this book is I think most evangelicals haven't actually read it. It's a complicated book. It's a lot easier. If you've read anything by Augustine, you've read Confessions. Yeah. Confessions isn't easy anyway. You get, you get to like the stuff on memory in book 10 and stuff. It gets pretty weird pretty quick. <laughs> but a lot of it is a little bit more accessible. City of God is very much not accessible. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, But so people hear the ideas of the two cities and the city of God. Well, we live in the city of man. And so that means pluralism. And like we just need to abandon any sort of like confident expectations about what we can expect in this world. And therefore a lot of people then take that to just sort of some kind of political quietism. So yes, Augustine wasn't a Constantinian, but he definitely was not a quietist. And he also was, especially um, this is what I'm going to focus on more of my energy. The section of, of city of God that is also, first of all, city of God is probably not read by most. The part that is least read is the first half. And that's where he does strong, uses very strong language, strong, imminent critique of pagan Roman society. And I'm going to say, is there stuff for us to learn from even just his method and his rhetoric here? Yeah, that's great. That sounds really, really good. <clears throat> yeah, I think City of God is one of those books that's very underappreciated and yet is incredibly important for our current situation because it was written at a sort of turning of the ages. And, you know, out of the rubble of the fall of Rome, of course, Christendom emerges Yep. Is it possible something like that could happen out of the fall yeah, right. of the West that that, that that a that a greater Christendom would emerge? Yeah. Uh, but I also think, um, you know, August, so Christians were largely scapegoated yeah. when yep. when the empire fell. 
you know, Christians were, were blamed for the fall of yeah. the empire. They were sort of considered the fly in the ointment, so to speak. And in a way, I think the same kind of thing is happening totally. today. When Christians get accused of bigotry or, you know, we, we talked about this already earlier in this conversation, when Christians get name called and accused of various things, really what they're doing is they're scapegoating us. It's like the, it's like the, the, the remnant of faithful Christians left in our culture are the one thing standing in the way of the utopia, the, the, the unified society. Uh, you know, the perfectly free society where everybody is fully autonomous and, and all that. And, and, and Christians are the ones who are gumming up the works. And so we get blamed uh, and we become the scapegoats. And, and Augustine is, I think you can think of City of God in a lot of ways as an apologetic work. I mean, it's many yep. things. I'd say yeah, it's it is. a historical work, but it's certainly an apologetic work. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, that is exa- it, it's, it's exactly the kind of thing we need now. Yeah, he doesn't just, that's why I said the first half is so important because he doesn't just bend over. This is the thing I, I think a lot of, the problem about living in a post-Christian civilization is we know that we are, we are partly at, our history is checkered. We know that. So it's, it's not like we just start, Christendom didn't just start today right. and therefore, boom, it's all exciting. No, we, we know we failed. Um, and therefore that's a really easy polemical uh, device that can be weaponized against us. Yeah. Well, you know, we're moving on because- you failed and you, all these problems. And, and therefore it's easy to blame Christians even for the present ills of society because of the things that are cherry picked yeah. as the worst parts of our past. Yeah. And I think Christians really have a hard time. And then, and I think they think, well, what, how we should humbly respond to this. Okay. So we're good reformed Christians. We're good Augustinian Christians. We believe in original sin. We believe that we're actually responsible for sins, even outside of our individual agency, yeah. all these things. And that gets weaponized. It's like, okay, then this subset of people in the world is is the is actually the scapegoat for all of our problems. Right. Yeah. And Augustine doesn't just bend over on that. So the the first ten books are him saying no, like uh, Rome was a mess, uh, and let me tell you all the evils that you have perpetrated. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he and he undermines that critique from within. So I think we I think we have a lot to learn from him on that. He doesn't yeah, just say well, you're right, you're right. Like, you know, that's right. The church is so bad. We're worse than everybody else. I get it. He yeah. doesn't do that. So do you guys, yeah, he doesn't concede the point as, as I think so many Christians today do. And this goes back to the kind of the whimsomeness and relevance uh, paradigms is, is, is they will uh, grant the accusation. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's one thing. One thing is Christians have to learn to do is yeah. yes, obviously we always want to confess sin. We never, right. we, we never cover our sin. When we actually have sin, we need to confess that. But, but it's also wrong to accept a false accusation right. as if it were true. Yeah. Doesn't Satan help anybody. Is, is the father of lies. He's going to lie about the church. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that going on in our culture where, where um, in so many cases, like, like Nancy Purse, you know, had this book you know, on yeah. uh, masculinity, which, yeah. you know, I think there's pros and cons about her book. But one thing that she demonstrated is that actually, you know, church going evangelical husbands are the best husbands and fathers yeah. with the happiest wives and and the most fruitful children of any of any group. Okay, well that's the exact opposite of the narrative, right. you know, where right. the evangelical husband is the oppressor and the abuser. So, you know, there's one there's there's one lot, you know, there's one falsehood that's got to be dismantled. Um, and you can just go through there's so many ways in which the church is being lied about. You know, the yeah. church has always oppressed women. The church has always been full of race, you know, racial hatred and animosity. Well, actually, the church is largely responsible for uh, for protecting women and sheltering yeah. women and yeah. freeing women from oppression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was it was in places where Christendom took hold that things like 
uh, wife beating were actually right. outlawed. Yeah. Uh, so actually, and, and one of the reasons that so many women converted in the early days of the church is because it was so much better for women when they became yeah. Christians as opposed to living in a pagan world. Same kind of thing with the race issue. While right. certainly there are all kinds of sins that have been committed, the church has been the greatest engine of racial reconciliation in the history of the world. Yeah. And part of the reason we don't know that is we don't understand how much racial strife existed in the first century when Paul is writing his letters to, to basically bring Jew and Gentile together into one community. Totally. Um, the church is considered uh, you know, to have this irrational, unscientific faith. Well, no, the, the actual reality, the true history is modern science got off the ground because the church supplied the worldview and the work ethic needed to make it happen. You know, modern science is basically a product of the church's teaching and the church's worldview and ministry and so forth. The hospital is a Christian invention. The university is a Christian invention. We don't know our own history, so we can't can't defend ourselves against these charges. And then when we give into them, we've just created one more obstacle to, you know, to, to, for people to get over in order to become Christians. Well, why would anybody want to become a Christian if Christians are ba- basically known for bigotry and misogyny and all these other things? Yeah. Uh, so I think getting that history right, and then, ha- and I think this takes courage, having the courage to defend what our forefathers in the faith have done, admitting mm-hmm. their failings, but defending them where, where they were in the right, uh, I think is hugely important as uh, part of the church's apologetic task and, and and missionary task in the present. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's just it's part of it is, is just honesty, right? I mean, it's not. Yeah, you said like it's not hiding where we have sin, not hiding from that. But we're we're being we confess on God's terms, not on secular progressive terms. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, like like Rig Joe's really great on this. So we don't we don't get steered by the world's categories. Right, we need right. to let God's categories right. uh, define our confession. Yeah, like re- and then also we need to be honest because there have been real benefit. Like God has been active throughout history. God is good. Christianity is good for society, even though it it's is. flawed. Yeah. And there's, you gave a bunch of examples. There's just so many of them. And so, uh, yeah, it, but I, it, I think we just need to be <clears throat> um, confident about what we have to offer the world. And I think a lot of this stuff is we, over accommodate the world's negative propaganda and it makes us lack confidence in our witness. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so. if, if there's one thing that we need to convince the world of, if there's one thing we need to convince a lot of Christians of, it's that the Christian faith is good for the world. Yeah. That's right. That, that, that if you really love your neighbor, whether he's a Christian or a pagan or whatever, if you really love your neighbor, you should desire for him to live in a Christian culture, a Christian right. society, because that that is the, the best and healthiest society where the most people will have an opportunity to thrive. Right. Yeah. In their natural lives. And we could say their supernatural lives. Mm-hmm. It's like this, it's this, this weird, um, I, I've seen, I saw an article about this. I'm trying to remember uh, where, but just like this, um, double, you know, reverse scapegoating thing, you know, this, this like Girardian sort of like, like we live in a time where victimization has become a, a virtue, you know, and so it's like, we're, yeah. we're Christian. So we regard the victim and, and want justice for the victim. And so that's so permeated our culture that now there's a race to become the victim. And, and so anyway, Christians have, Christians yeah, there's have a new, yeah, that. there's a new hierarchy there. I mean, that, that is how Tom, that's, that is Tom Holland's positive twist on Nietzsche. Cause that is Nietzsche's critique of Christianity yeah. mm-hmm. is that it, it regarded the victim and therefore made, made the West weak. Yeah. Uh, well, Holland says, well, the only, yeah, we, we do regard the victim. That is a great triumph of Christianity. Um, 
And uh, but it, what's weird about how it gets twisted because it's abstracted from the Christian whole again is then you create this new hierarchy. And um, and uh, er- Eric Kaufman, you know, he's he's written a lot on wokeness, um, and he has been really good on that. Of well, the way he defines wokeness is that it's the um, sacralization of previously uh, marginalized groups. Mm. And so it's not just consideration for those who are suffering. It's it's creating a whole new hierarchy. And then therefore what's weird about that is then everybody tries to claim these and they fabricate right. victim right. status. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's so weird for so many ways. And then uh, Joshua Mitchell is really great on this of all the new scapegoats that we keep making. So right now it's a certain subset of society, but it's not going to stop there. Yeah. It's going to keep right. going. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's really good. I mean, it, it is really interesting how Nietzsche anticipated wokeness. Yeah. And yeah. victim culture. Yeah, the uh, the first the first sermon that that uh, Jason Cherry uh, preached in my backyard when we first planted this church was was on the unforgivable sin. Uh, yeah, in, 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 that Jesus speaks of, and he he made the point that you know your your grandparents' racism is not <laughs> the unforgivable sin that right. follows yeah. you through generations. That's right. Well, James, thanks for joining us. Uh, this is great and look forward to having you in Birmingham. Larson, you want to wrap us up? Yeah, well, it's been great. It's been great uh, having you on the show, James. And, and uh, for those of you listening, we'll, we'll include some links in the show notes to the event that's happening here in a few weeks and to James's spicy Twitter feed and uh, (laughs) anything else we should be, uh, we should be pointing people to in the show notes. Uh, No, that's, uh, that's good. I mean, uh, yeah, if you follow, if you go on my Twitter, most of my publications are are there. So, killer. All right. Well, Thanks again, James. Yeah, it was great having you. The Got a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.